Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, July 23rd, 2010. We're doing Friday Light today on Friday. I know that's crazy talk, but that's okay. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Jesus Christ believed that there was a such thing as true doctrine and false doctrine, that there are true teachers and false teachers, that there are real prophets and there are false prophets. Uh, we, we, we would be wise, even in this postmodern age, to um, not deviate from Jesus' ideas here. If Jesus believed there was a such thing as a false teacher and a false prophet, uh, we'd be wise not to contradict him and say, oh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Truth is what you make it to be. There's a plurality of truth. Hogwash. <laughs> anyway, we'd be wise to go with Jesus' view of truth. So that's what we work with. We work from those assumptions. There's a such thing as truth and error. There's a such thing as darkness and light. There's a such thing as true prophets, false prophets, good teachers, bad teachers. And uh, we basically believe and confess that God's word is true and that when somebody is speaking for God and what they say contradicts what God has revealed in his word, they are lying. They're lying like a rug. Now, they may not be lying intentionally. They, they may sincerely believe their falsehoods to be true, but it's false nonetheless. Anyway, on t today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday Light, we usually uh, pick a singular topic, stick to it, and it's uh, uh, we don't normally do uh, bad sermon reviews on Friday and things like that. And I've got a series that I'm going to embark on that I think is just fantastic and worth passing along. Uh, Professor Ken Samples, uh, formerly of uh, the Christian Research Institute, and um, he uh, works with uh, Kim Riddlebarger at uh, Christ Reformed Church in uh, Anaheim, California. He did a series entitled H Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas, and they are just fantastically good, sound uh, presentations of 
bedrock, bedrock foundational doctrines and ideas within historic Christianity. And I think they're worth passing along to you. Today's lecture is entitled Dead Men Don't Stay Dead. This is one of historic Christianity's seven dangerous ideas. Dead Men Don't Stay Dead, looking at the resurrection of Jesus. Here is uh, Professor Ken Samples. That you could come out to our academy session. Uh, the series of lectures that I'm going to be giving over the next seven weeks relate to a book manuscript that I'm presently working on. And uh, writing is difficult business. And so if you can remember me in prayer, I would uh, very much appreciate it. The title of the tentative manuscript, which I hope my publisher will, will keep, Publishers always have the right to change the book title if they don't think that it is uh, appropriate or if it doesn't sell well enough. But my publisher, Baker, has uh, been quite generous with me. The title of the book is, as you see on the screen, Historic Christianity, Seven Dangerous Ideas. And so I think the place to begin is to talk a little bit about what a dangerous idea is. Uh, my son, Michael, said, Dad, are you sure you want to put a book out that says that Christianity is dangerous? Uh, won't people think that uh, that it's not a good thing? Of course, the older you get, the more you hope people do think you're dangerous. Uh, when I was in high school, all of the, the pretty girls dated all the dangerous guys, and I was never a dangerous guy. Uh, dangerous ideas in such disciplines as philosophy and particularly in science are ideas that challenge the standard paradigm. A paradigm, of course, is the accepted model of the day. A dangerous idea turns the paradigm upside down. These ideas go against what most people naturally think to be true and real. I don't know if that's always true, but dangerous ideas do challenge the typical paradigm. And I'm convinced that Christianity has some powerful paradigms that have turned the world upside down in a positive way. Such revolutionary ideas tend to threaten accepted beliefs and often contain explosive world and life view implications for all of humanity. Uh, where I came up with the idea of this book is really uh, from another book. There was a book entitled Darwin's Dangerous Idea. And of course, Darwin came along in the 19th century with his idea of uh, evolution, and uh, it challenged the paradigm. It uh, made people feel uncomfortable. Well, what I don't think people often appreciate is that Christianity has been doing that for centuries, that it turned the world upside down in the early centuries. Historic Christianity contains numerous beliefs that are theologically and philosophically volatile in the best sense of the term. The Christian faith contains powerful truth claims that have succeeded in transforming the church and turning the world upside down. This series of lectures will explore seven such provocative beliefs proclaimed by historic Christianity. I'm not saying there are only seven dangerous ideas in Christianity, uh, but I like the number seven. And uh, I think it's a it's a provocative way of kind of looking at these issues in many respects. Uh, Christianity was a faith in the early Roman Empire that pulled the rug right out from underneath uh, the pagan philosophies of life. And in many ways, because Christianity has retreated uh, in the European civilization, 
I think often people fail to appreciate how provocative the faith is and what it has accomplished in terms of uh, Western civilization. So let's talk uh, this evening about what I'm going to call Christianity's most dangerous idea uh, and how it impacts the way we all think about death. Uh, All of us think about death. Uh, In fact, I taught a university course for five years. It was uh, entitled uh, Thinking About Death and Dying. So I got to, all the students would say, twice a week I get to hear Professor Samples talk for an hour and a half about death. Uh, But oftentimes, uh, we don't want to think about death. It uh, it's painful. It's difficult. It it involves losing people that we love. It involves the end of our life. And yet Christianity has something to powerfully say about the nature of human death. So let me explore this idea uh, a little bit. Um, I've always been interested in the atheistic existential philosophers. And some of them have talked about human beings being a cosmic orphan. Uh, The atheist perspective, the naturalistic worldview, says that nature is all there is. There's no God. There's no human soul. Human beings are are purely natural. Uh, Our origin is rooted in uh, the evolutionary chain. So some people have said that that man, that human beings are a cosmic orphan. We're doomed to die, uh, but we have the capacity to ask why. And this, of course, leads to existential angst. Uh, I'm now in my early 50s, and so I have lived more life before than will likely be ahead of me. And it's made me ask questions about what is life about? What is my purpose and and significance? And so the secular pattern of the day is that we're born into this world purely accidentally. There's no rhyme or reason. And we face our death. And uh, questioning that can raise uh, a real sense of, of angst. According to the atheistic existential philosophers, people like Nietzsche, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, they would describe the human predicament this way, uh, that you're going to die. Uh, There is no getting around it. Of course, uh, if you exercise and eat right uh, and avoid stress and do all of these things, you might stretch another decade out of your life. Recently read uh, an article in Christianity Today that said Seventh-day Adventists live on average 10 years longer than the average American. Of course, I always tease my Adventist friends and say, is it, do you really live that long or does it just seem long because you don't have any fun? You don't do any fun things in your life. Well, actually, the Adventists, I think, have made real contributions about health. But nonetheless, even Seventh-day Adventists die. You're going to die. You can't change it. Uh, You might be able to slow it down, but it is inevitable. It is more certain than paying your taxes. So you're going to die. And you're going to die soon. Uh, Even if it's several decades away. Uh, Think back a, a few decades in your life and you realize how quickly 
Time goes by. So you're going to die, and you're going to die soon. And you can't opt out. As Sartre says, there's no exit. You're in this predicament. You didn't ask to be born, but you are. And now you know that you're going to die, and that day will come, and it will come soon. And, of course, from a naturalistic, atheistic worldview, you're going to die alone. Uh, even if you commit suicide in the arms of your, your lover, uh, Martin Luther said that there's two things that everybody has to do alone, and one of them is die. The other is uh, deal with your own sins. But everybody has to die alone. And, of course, they're in the atheistic existential perspective, uh, as in the naturalistic worldview overall. There's no God. There is no one there to meet you at death. And so you'll never see, smell, taste, or touch. You'll never think again. You'll never love again. It is the end. And then the fourth point, not only are you going to die, and not only will it be soon, and you will do it alone, but you're going to be dead forever. And that is the secular perspective. We may not want to think about it. Many studies say that uh, people do not like to think about death. They even have studies that indicate that uh, people feel like if they don't think about it, if they don't acknowledge it, that maybe it won't happen. Of course, uh, talk about uh, a delusion but this is the secular point of view. There, there is no savior. There is no God. There is no life after death. You're going to die. You're going to die soon. You'll have to die alone, and you're going to be dead forever. Uh, now, secularism has never held sway in large terms of numbers. It, it's kind of hard to figure how many atheists, agnostics, skeptics kind of secular type of people there are. Uh, some of the, athe the uh, atheists would like to say the numbers are maybe in the world 20%. I think that's probably too high. But uh, while atheism and secularism have never held sway in large terms of numbers, they have held significant sway in terms of the intellectual centers of the Western world. And so at the universities, this kind of idea weighs very heavily. And, of course, atheistic existentialism came out of World War II. Uh, as I have mentioned many times, my father was a, a, an American serviceman in the Second World War. Uh, he told me that when he walked into Berlin after this long fight with the German army, uh, Berlin was utterly in rubble. Uh, in fact, Western Europe was in rubble. If it were not for the Marshall Plan, I don't know what would have happened to European civilization. But it is kind of out of this bleak social period that atheism kind of arose. Where, where do we find meaning and purpose? If we're going to die, if it's going to happen to us soon, if we will die alone and we'll be dead forever, how do we come to grips with this point of view? Well, I, I would propose that uh, this is a worldview of despair. Uh, this is a worldview that gives you no legitimate hope. Uh, and I believe 
that uh, what people need in life is a worldview that does give them hope and purpose and significance. I'm very happy that many people who struggle with mental health challenges have uh, gotten the help of medications that are able to stabilize them in some cases. Uh, I've always been an advocate of, of a good sense of talk therapy and all of those kinds of things. But ultimately, I think that what a person needs is a worldview that gives them meaning and purpose. And one of the most meaningful purposes that we need is meaning now and in death. And so here are some of those atheistic philosophers. Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the German philosopher of the 19th century, who is probably best known for his expression, God is dead. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, one of the most influential uh, European philosophers of the end of the uh, 20th century. Uh, a very bleak worldview. Uh, I don't believe that naturalism, atheism offers the kind of hope and purpose, but many people have, have adopted this kind of perspective, and particularly its view of, of death. Of course, according to the worldview of naturalism, again, nature is the sole reality. There is no, there's nothing above the cosmos. There is no spiritual reality, no God, no human soul, no angels just the material world in, in all of its uh, complexity. So the naturalist world says you die, humanity goes extinct. The earth and the galaxy literally come apart. Some of my astrophysics colleagues talk about dark energy. Uh, it is uh, one of the theories about the end of our galaxy and the universe is that the universe will expand at such a rate that it will overcome gravity and literally the atoms will break apart. And fourth, the cosmos grows completely cold and lifeless. Now, from a naturalist point of view, that is the scenario. Whether you want to look at it that way, whether you want to take it, that's what's going to happen. Individuals die, humanity goes extinct, the earth and the galaxy come apart, and the cosmos itself grows cold due to entropy. This, of course, has led uh, many people through the centuries to raise serious questions about death. Is death a wall or is it a door? Uh, the Confessions, written by Augustine, who in many ways kind of developed the historic Christian ways of thinking and worldview categories. Here's a couple quotations from the Confessions. Augustine says, I was sick and tired of living and yet afraid to die. I was sick and tired of living and yet afraid to die. I think a lot of people feel that way during their life, that life is difficult, it proposes problems, and yet we're afraid of what might come next. Augustine also was always good at turns of phrases. He says, I was born into this life which leads to death. Or should I say this death which leads to life? And that's the paradigm shift that I want to talk with you about this evening. Is life something that leads to death? Or should we flip it around and see life as death, which ultimately leads to eternal life? And so we have two perspectives. Death is a wall. It's the end. You live, you're born, you live, you die. It's the end of existence, the, the end of your conscious existence. So death is a wall for the naturalist worldview. Or 
should we think of death as a doorway, a passage? And a lot of people believe in life after death. A lot of people believe in eternal uh, ideas. But it's Christianity that uh, puts this issue right at the forefront. I call this the linchpin of historic Christianity. A.J. Hoover, a Christian author and apologist, he says this about the resurrection. He says, we've reached the Achilles heel of the Christian faith, the jugular vein of the entire system, the resurrection of Christ. Now, what would, what would happen to a naturalistic worldview? What would happen to that paradigm if Christ has risen from the dead, if Christ has conquered death? It seems to me it would not only change our personal ideas about death itself, but it would change our whole orientation. So I want to spend a little time talking about the resurrection. And I think that this photo is, is very engaging. It probably would be a good practice if we went back to burying people right outside the churches. Because we, we live in a modern world. We're insulated from death. We, we have very professional people. When somebody dies, you, you don't see the dead body. We've got uh, people who take care of all of that, the, the funeral and everything. But in the historic uh, perspective of Christianity, they would often have a cemetery right outside the church. And so you'd walk into church and you'd see the graves of your friends and your loved ones. Uh, sometimes I think that we don't deal as effectively with death as people in the past because it's kind of been taken out of our hands. Well, the New Testament has some very specific things to say about the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the importance of Easter, what we have just celebrated in the church season. He says in 1 Corinthians 15:14, and if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So the resurrection is not a peripheral doctrine. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Christ. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we have reason to question who he was, the claims that he made. But if he did, it would seem that everything he said, if he can conquer death, then we can take as true everything that he said and did. Paul says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sin. So how do I know that Christ's death on the cross brought about forgiveness and reconciliation to God? I know it ultimately because he conquered death. The empty tomb is Christ's victory uh, over death, and the empty tomb is a symbol of the afterlife of all of us, that our death will ultimately lead to life. Now, William Lane Craig is a evangelical philosopher and apologist who's written extensively, uh, extensively on the resurrection. In talking about the resurrection and what it means historically, he said this, he said, quote, the earliest Christians saw Jesus' resurrection as both the vindication of his personal claims and the harbinger of our own resurrection to eternal life. So historic Christianity sees Jesus' resurrection as a confirmation of all of Jesus' messianic claims, his claims of being Savior. 
but it's also a confirmation that that paradigm, that secular paradigm, is false. Yes, we will die. Yes, we will die soon. But through faith, we will not die alone. And death, rather than being something that is forever death, will actually turn into something that is forever life. And that is a switch of paradigm. And the way we think about our death impacts our life, then the way we think about our our death in Christ and his resurrection should change our life as well. Uh, here is a, a photograph of uh, probably a tomb that would be somewhat similar to the, to the tomb of Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, evidences uh, for the resurrection. And so the first dangerous idea is the idea that dead men don't stay dead. At least one dead man didn't stay dead. And through faith in him, we're not going to remain dead. We're going to become alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, all of the things that we want to talk about this evening take place within the context of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire has all kinds of religious worldview perspectives. And it's important for us to be able to to appreciate how Christianity influenced that empire. Remember, Christianity goes from 12 people. Jesus has the 12 apostles right around the year 30 A.D. Within 300 years, the entire Roman Empire is dominated by Christianity. Within a thousand years, all of Western civilization is influenced by the faith. Today, there are probably 2.2 billion people on the planet that in one way or another associate themselves with Jesus. And so what was it that caused the emergence of the faith and for that faith to dominate Western civilization? It's one thing, the resurrection. So this is that idea of a dangerous idea. The apostles' belief that they had encountered the resurrected Christ turned the entire world upside down. So Christianity has lots of dangerous ideas. And in my view, the most dangerous idea of all is that Jesus rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, then it is true that he was who he said he was, the Son of God in human flesh. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time with you talking about some of the evidence for the resurrection. What kinds of evidence have led Christian people through the centuries to conclude that at least one of these dead men don't stay dead? And I think that we can we can talk about six strands of evidence for the resurrection. And I want to talk about each of them and highlight how and why I think these are strong support for Jesus's resurrection. Okay, we're going to pause right there before he gets into the evidences for the resurrection. We're going to pay some bills. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world-class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top-level postgraduate theological degree. Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained. So what's the difference between the European model and the American model? The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so-and-so, and the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored, something like Oxford or at Cambridge, and uh, walked through graduate work. If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. 
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, believing in the resurrection is one of Christianity's dangerous ideas. I, I, I like that idea, that it's dangerous. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my... Uh, well, <laughs> There we go. My brain just slipped into automatic mode. <laughs> oh, man. Fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing mission and work of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here is the balance of uh, Ken Sample's lecture on the seven dangerous ideas of historic Christianity, the uh, resurrection of the dead. Let's, let's take a look at the first one, the empty tomb. The empty tomb. Well, everything that we read in the New Testament about the tomb of Jesus is in accord with what archaeology has taught us about how the ancient people, particularly uh, in Israel, uh, would bury people. So the early tomb is consistent with what we know about how people went about burying uh, people who died. We also realize that the empty tomb is one of the earliest messages of historic Christianity. Sometimes... Christian theologians and historians uh, talk about uh, kerygma. Let me put that word up here, kerygma. Kerygma refers to the, the earliest, the most primitive message, the preached message, the proclamation of early Christianity. And one of the earliest statements about Christianity relates to the tomb on Sunday morning being empty. Now, how does this cash out in terms of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, let's think about it a little bit. Remember that after the resurrection, after the apostles say that they encountered, uh, they saw Jesus, they touched him, they heard him, they saw the marks of the cross in his body, 
Uh, it transformed them. Remember that right after Easter Sunday, they go right downtown into Jerusalem. That is, they remain in the very same proximity in which Jesus preached and taught and in which he was buried. So they are preaching the message of his resurrection right in the same locale in which he was reported to be buried. Now, let let me ask you this question. If you were part of the Jewish intelligentsia or the Roman authorities and perceived Christianity or the, the way it was called or this movement of the Nazarene as it was referred to very early on, If you were going to pull the plug on this group, if you were going to falsify Christianity, if you were going to show that this was a cultic religion that needed to be uh, gotten rid of, how would you do it? How would you how would you falsify Christianity? Could I propose that there would be one very effective way of doing it? Produce the body of Jesus. Produce the body of Jesus. And Christianity would have been done. It would have been over. I mean, even if they would have found the body a couple weeks later, a couple months later, and it had decayed, that would have still been devastating to Christianity. Why? Well, remember, the apostles are preaching and teaching the resurrection. And if you go back to the book of Acts, let me remind you that in the book of Acts, The earliest preaching, that kerygma, focuses not so much on Jesus' death on the cross as it does on him being raised alive from the tomb, his resurrection. So the central message of the primitive Christian church was rooted in the resurrection. If you produce the body, you falsified the faith. Now, did the Romans and, and the Jewish religious leaders and I I want to point out that there were members of the Sanhedrin, the religious community, that believed in Jesus. And so it was not an exclusive body that uh, found Jesus guilty of blasphemy and committed him to be executed under Pontius Pilate. But the Jews and the Romans had plenty of people. They had motive to squelch this movement. And they had lots of people. They could have looked in all of the tombs. They had the motive. They had the means. They had the opportunity to do this. How would the apostles have the the chutzpah, to use a Jewish term, of preaching the resurrection if Jesus' tomb was right there where it could have been gotten at? The reason the apostles could be preaching the empty tomb because it was in fact empty. They couldn't produce the body. In fact, early on in the Gospels, the Jewish religious community admit that there's a problem and they come up with the story that, you know, uh, somebody came and stole the body. So they admit that the, the tomb was empty early on. We know a lot about the empty tomb. We know how Jesus was buried. We also know that some of these other ideas, some of these alternative explanations aren't going to really work. That the disciples came in the middle of the night and stole the body. And how did they move the boulder away from the tomb? How did they overcome the guards? Now, if the guards fell asleep, 
If they were asleep, how'd they know the apostles came and stole the body? And do these apostles seem capable of doing something like that, knowing what they were like after Jesus' death? Peter denying Christ three times, the apostles hovering in fear. In fact, as I've said many times, the women followers of Jesus exhibit much more courage than do his male followers. Maybe they have more to lose. But none of these theories seem to help. Uh, some people have proposed that the women went to the wrong tomb. Maybe Mary Magdalene, in her grief and sorrow in Jesus' death, maybe she uh, got confused and went to the wrong tomb. Uh, but wouldn't, wouldn't the apostles have corrected that? I mean, it's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I mean, what if I invited you over to my house for dinner and you had a hard time finding my house? Uh, you know, that's understandable. But what if, what if uh, I invited you over to my house and I had a hard time finding my house? Wouldn't Joseph of Arimathea have known where his tomb was? And, of course, in the New Testament, there is a chain of custody of the body of Jesus. Jesus is crucified publicly under Pontius Pilate. And his body is taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, by some of Jesus' followers, and some of the apostles follow that to the place in which Jesus is entombed. So none of the naturalistic alternatives have much explanatory power at all. In fact, they're very, very weak. So the empty tomb is a strand of evidence for the resurrection. Number two, let's talk about the post-mortem appearances. According to the New Testament, for 40 days following that first Easter Sunday morning, Jesus of Nazareth began appearing to various people. Uh, and a variety of people. And a variety of circumstances that are very, very difficult to explain. Uh, for example, he appears to large groups of people. He appears to individuals. He appears to men and women. In fact, uh, appearing to the women is, is an interesting element that I'll develop in just a minute or two. He also appears to people who are sympathetic to him, people who followed him in his ministry. But he also appears to people who are his enemies. He appears to James, his half-brother, who at one point in the gospel, it says that James and his other siblings come to take control over him because they think he's lost his mind. James is not a sympathetic figure to Jesus, and yet he becomes one of the most influential Christian leaders in the early church. Here's to Paul, who is anything but sympathetic. He also appears in, in, a, in a variety of contexts uh, in terms of these post-mortem appearances. Uh, he appears to Thomas, who is unsympathetic. In fact, in fact, let's let's touch upon those three people that are not sympathetic to Jesus at all. Thomas says, "Look, uh, I know my brothers, the apostles, claim to have seen Jesus, but in, until I have some empirical data." Till I can take my finger and put it in the nail marks. Till I can put my hand and thrust it into his spear wound in the side, I'm not going to believe. So he was, he was not 
sympathetic. Yet, he says later that uh, we're told later through apostolic authority that Thomas has an encounter with Christ. And it is so convincing to him that he cries out, uh, the Greek is, my Lord and my God. Here's to James. Imagine if one of your relatives embarrassed you. Imagine if one of your relatives uh, said things that were extraordinary, led you to believe that they uh, suffered from mental health issues. Uh, put James in context in, in Israel. Yet James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. Um, many, of course, argue about who was the central leader of the early Christian church. I would argue that Peter is the primitive central spokesperson and preacher, but as time goes on, James takes a position in which he is seen as one of the pillars of the faith. Something happened to change his whole world and turn it upside down. He later dies a martyr's death because he says that what turned his world upside down was he encountered the resurrected Christ. And of course, Paul will will save him a little bit here, but he may be the most extraordinary person. I remember reading a, a statement by David Hume, the famous Scottish skeptical philosopher, and he said, you know, I, I, can't, I couldn't ever come to believe in a miracle like the resurrection unless you could show me that people of uncommon education, of uncommon good common sense, and people who were not predisposed to believe it but were convinced by solid evidence, that's the only way I would come to believe it. Well, could I propose that uh, David Hume should have looked more closely at Thomas, James, and especially Paul? I think they fit all of those qualifications. They were men of integrity. Paul exclusively was a man of education and of good common sense. And they became convinced through these multiple appearances that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, let's opt for a moment for some alternative explanation. As as I say to some of my secular friends, uh, the resurrection, um, the the crucifixion is a historical fact. And the resurrection, uh, the statement of the resurrection is rooted in history. So if it didn't happen in a miraculous context, then how did it happen? Give me an alternative explanation. Now, notice that if you have a some kind of explanatory hypothesis to explain the empty tomb, now you need another hypothesis to explain the postmortem appearances. So one of the problems with naturalistic theories is they don't have one particular theory that explains all of the data and is coherent. I mean, you have to say, well, how was the tomb empty? Well, maybe the disciples stole the body or the women went to the wrong tomb, uh, or maybe the, there was a chain of custody was lost to the, to the body of Jesus. I think it's John Dominic Crossan who says that Jesus' body was likely buried in uh, another uh, pit with other bodies or dogs came and ate it. Okay, well, you have one theory there, but then how do you explain these various appearances? Well, then you need some kind of 
uh, hallucination theory. Then you need some other type of theory. So the naturalistic explanations, explanatory theories, get very complicated. Very difficult to propose some kind of hallucination theory, particularly when you have the appearance of Jesus, according to the Apostle Paul, of more than 500 people. You also have a hard time bringing all of that kind of psychological subjective experiences together in explaining all of this data. Uh, it seems the, the strength of the historic Christian testimony of the resurrection is it's one theory. It's one explanatory hypothesis, and it fits the data pretty well. Let's move to three, the transformation of the apostles. You look carefully at the Gospels and you realize that once Jesus was arrested and once he was found guilty of blasphemy and crucified, the followers of Jesus, they literally fall apart. Uh, Peter denies Christ. They're hovering away. Uh, the women are much more courageous. And to go back to the women for a minute, uh, I think this is a, an important element that shows the truthfulness of the resurrection. Um, the apostles look really bad in the New Testament. They, they're, they're bumblers. The British say they're thick. Uh, the, the apostles are thick. They're, they're bumblers. They look really bad. They, they are cowardly. Uh, if I was going to write a story, I'd want to make myself look a lot better. Uh, courageous, heroic. Um, and if you wanted the Gospels to be taken seriously, you probably wouldn't have Jesus appearing to his women followers first. Now, now, why is that? Well, I don't want to offend any of the ladies here. But historically, in the first century, not in every context, but in many contexts, and particularly the Jewish context, a woman's testimony in court was not taken with the same degree of seriousness as a man's. Now, uh, I'm not saying that uh, there was anything right about that at all, but if I wanted to invent a story, I probably would not have the central people that Jesus appeared to being women. But what if it's true? It, that seems like one of those those truth statements that he appeared to, to his women followers. And again, they never back down one inch. They see him on Easter. They are devoted to him their, their entire lives. They sacrificed while he was alive. So this is one of those kind of truth elements that is connected with it. Transformation of the apostles. They're cowardly. They're weak. They're hiding. And yet something changes them. They undergo a change. A, a, a couple weeks later, they're out there preaching the gospel. They're willing to take on anything and everything that the Romans and the Jews have to throw at them. What is the transformation? What was it that turned their world upside down? According to them, they had firsthand personal encounters with the resurrected Christ. You know, people don't, people don't change easily. Think about your own life. 
Think about the, the moral elements of our faith. Think about how much we desire at times to, to live our lives with integrity. And we realize that changing us down deep is very, very difficult. What was it that changed these men from people who were cowering, who were afraid, to then people who became the most heroic individuals in the early primitive Christian church. They say it was because they saw the resurrected Christ, and after that, they didn't care about what would be done to them here in the now. They knew that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. He was the Messiah. He had conquered death. Well, that, of course, leads us to talk about Paul. I would like to propose that Paul's conversion to Christianity is the greatest conversion in the history of the world. I can't think of another conversion that would would compare to it. There have been some amazing conversions. I don't think any one, though, really compares with the Apostle Paul. Paul undoubtedly uh, saw, before becoming Paul, a Jew, a, a rabbinic scholar, uh, it is believed by some historians that if, Paul, that if Saul had not become Paul, he would likely have gone down in history in a similar vein to Gamaliel, one of the leading rabbinic scholars. He is an enemy of Christianity. He sees it as a cult. He thinks it needs to be stamped out, that it is, it is bringing harm and distortion to Judaism. Then he has the Damascus Road experience. He describes it three different times in his writings. Now, how would I compare the, the change in the Apostle Paul? Well, um, I think it would, I think it would if, if we were to duplicate the conversion of the Apostle Paul, I think it would have to be something like this. I think it would have to be somebody like Winston Churchill becoming a Nazi. I think it would have to be something like Hitler becoming a Jew. Or in an American political context, I think it would be something like Ronald Reagan becoming a communist. It would have to be that profound. It would have to be a radical change in the life of this person. And so Paul's conversion, um, is he going to pin all of this? Uh, Paul knows the Old Testament. What was it that would change him the way that it did? Uh, was it merely visions? Now, of course, there are people in the Jesus Seminar, there are skeptical liberal scholars who say, look, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Paul and all these other people had these subjective visions. But the problem with Paul is Paul has had visions. He says that he's seen so many wonderful uh, heavenly things that he can't even speak about them. But he says, those visions are not the same thing as the resurrection. I encountered him. And so the conversion of the Apostle Paul, an extraordinary event. And again, notice the types of people that are converted. Not just Peter, not just John, who are very supportive, not just Mary and the women who are very supportive, but Thomas, who is skeptical. James, who is unequivocally against what his brother, his half-brother, is teaching, and Paul, who is an outright enemy. The transformation of the Apostle Paul. 
Number five, the change in the day of worship. What's significant about all of this? Well, uh, think about it. Um, The Jews worshipped on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. Sunday, the first day of the week, has no significance whatsoever. Slowly and gradually in the New Testament, my Seventh-day Adventist friends like to argue and quibble with me at this point, but I'm willing to make my case that slowly in the New Testament, Christians began meeting on the first day of the week. They have collection for money. They call the first day of the week the Lord's Day. Slowly and gradually, there is a change from the seventh-day Sabbath to the first day of the week, Sunday. Why? There's only one reason. There's only one, there's only one reason why Sunday would be significant. It's the day Christ rose from the dead. And so, the truth of the resurrection, through reflection, began changing Christian worship. The change in the day of worship. Why? Why why pick that day? Because that's the most important day of the Christian year. Sunday. And then finally, the emergence of the Christian church. Remember, we're talking about this idea of a dangerous idea. Dangerous ideas turn the world upside down. They change the paradigm. They radically change the way people look at the world. Think of Western civilization. What philosophy, what ideology, what religious ideas have changed Western civilization? And where did the Christian church come from? Why did it come about? Why is all of this this incredible development of Western civilization, how did it all start? According to the primitive message, It all starts with the resurrection of Christ. So every day that I live in Western civilization and every day that I see Christianity and everywhere that I meet Christians, I see evidence of the historical truth of the resurrection that turned the world upside down. Six strands of evidence for the resurrection. The empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, the transformation of the apostles, the conversion of Paul, the change in the day of worship to Sunday, the emergence of the Christian church. It's there. How did it get there? Jesus rose from the dead. The alternative theories, the naturalistic explanations, I find all of them very inadequate. Highly implausible. Thus, I think that people ought to consider that historic, consistent one explanation. The tomb is empty because Christ rose from the dead. People are seeing him because he is really appearing to them. The apostles encounter him. Paul encounters him. It changes them overnight in extraordinary ways. Sunday is recognized as the Lord's Day, the day he rose. And the community of the church is the community of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, there is no historic Christianity. Six strands of evidence. What is the resurrection and what is it not? First of all, what it's not. It's not a resuscitation. Jesus was not resuscitated in the tomb. I I didn't talk about the swoon theory. The swoon theory is... Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He only swooned. 
That is, he was, he was beaten, severely beaten. He was crucified, but he didn't die. And so they put him in an empty tomb. And somehow the cold air kind of resuscitated him. And he came back to life. Well, Jesus was dead. They didn't break the legs because they knew he was dead. But even if he were not dead, how plausible, how believable is the idea of lying in an empty tomb is somehow going to resuscitate him? He wasn't resuscitated. It wasn't a near-death experience. He didn't have a brush with death. And it was not reincarnation. Rather, the resurrection, Jesus was resurrected to a new type of human life, eternal life with a transformed, glorified physical body, no longer subject to weakness, pain, sickness, or death. So Jesus has the same body that was crucified. As we'll see in a minute, he has the marks of the cross. Yet the body is changed. He's now capable of things that is different than what he was capable of before. He can appear He can materialize in the presence of a room without going to the door and knocking on the door and asking entrance. So it is a new type of human life with a transformed, glorified body, no longer subject to weakness, pain, sickness, and death. And what is so powerful about the resurrection is Jesus' resurrected body will be like our bodies. We will die. It will be soon. But we will not die alone and we will not be dead forever the way the naturalists speak of. What did the eyewitnesses say about Christ's resurrected body? We also recognize, by the way, that uh, the early sources of Christianity were written by people who were eyewitnesses or associates of eyewitnesses. We know, one, that Jesus' body still bore the marks of the cross in his hands, feet, and side. So it's the same body that was crucified but it had now been changed. Roman crucifixion, a brutal way of dying. The Romans didn't invent it. They borrowed it from the Phoenicians, but they probably perfected it. It was a way of uh, not only killing the person, but sending a political message that if you mess with the Roman Empire, we're going to make you suffer. And so uh, Jesus uh, is clearly dead, the the the, the uh, spear is thrust in his side. His, uh, it illustrates the blood and water illustrate that he was dead. No breaking of the legs because he was dead. Two, Jesus' resurrected body could be seen, touched, and handled. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't subjective visionary experiences. The apostles talk about seeing him, touching him, handling him. He invites them to do so. The 1950s liberal New Testament scholars said that Pontius Pilate was likely an invention. He never existed. It was an invention of the early church until they found this millstone monument with his name on it. Until they began finding coins with his imprint and his name printed on them. That Jesus died at the hands of Pontius Pilate is a historical fact. That he rose from the dead, I think, is equally a fact. Three, Jesus' resurrected body was a body of flesh and bone. It had corporeality. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 24, a phantom, a ghost, does not have flesh and bone as you see me have. 
before, Jesus invited people to handle and examine his body. That doesn't sound like visionary, subjective experiences. So the resurrection, new life, changes people, turns families upside down, changes the course of history, Western civilization is changed. Five, Jesus even ate and drank with his disciples after his resurrection. He eats a fish. Uh, he drinks wine. This illustrates the physicality, the corporeality of his body. And so the early Christians develop this little um, Secret coded message, Iesus Kurios Theos Huios Soter. Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior of the world. This acrostic. Uh, Christianity is an illegal religion for a couple hundred years. Early Christians have to be somewhat secret about communicating these ideas. The fish is probably the oldest symbol of historic Christianity, maybe even predating the cross as a symbol. Six, Jesus' resurrection body was certainly material and physical in nature, and yet it had been transformed into a glorious, immortal, and imperishable body. It was clearly capable of things that ordinary mortal bodies are not. For example, it could appear and disappear in a closed room and ascend into heaven. Therefore, there was both continuity and discontinuity between Jesus' body before the resurrection and his body after the resurrection. It's the same body. It's physical. But yet, it's now changed. And our bodies will be like that. Uh, the early Christians looked at the resurrection as a confirmation of all Jesus' claims, but also the promised hope of we will survive the death of our body, and when Christ returns, he will resurrect our bodies. Many years ago, on Easter Sunday, I went to a service at Seal Beach. Those of you who live here in Southern California remember Seal Beach down uh, by the beach areas of Southern California. And I remember uh, being there at 6 a.m. with lots of other Christians. And uh, that week I had been thinking and reading about the resurrection. And I had discovered that the dolphin is an ancient Christian symbol for the resurrection of Christ. How many of you knew that, by the way? Raise your hand. Well, um, when I was at Seal Beach, right before the Easter service was to happen, a dolphin popped its head up. Uh, just one, and just stayed there for a long time, just swimming up and back. And I thought to myself, how many people on this beach, there were a lot of Christian people, realized that the dolphin is a symbol of the resurrected Christ? Probably not very many. But that's one of the ancient Christian symbols of the resurrection. I won't say that that was a message to me, but uh, I did think that that was pretty neat uh, to see a dolphin pop its head up there on Easter Sunday morning. Okay. Well, let me move my talk uh, to the conclusion by just summarizing some of the statements about the resurrection. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians um, about 55 A.D. So let's do a little timeline element here real quick. Jesus is crucified in 30 A.D. He writes uh, 1 Corinthians 55 A.D. 
he says that his conversion was a year or two after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and notice that he goes down, if, if you read the book of Acts, if you read his writings, he goes down and talks with the apostles right after he has his conversion on the Damascus Road. So about 32 or 33 A.D., he's investigating all these things. He has several meetings with the apostles, with Peter, with James, and with John. So people say, well, wait a second, he's writing here in 55, that's a long time after. But remember, Paul is described these experiences that happened very early on. Uh, Paul knows all about all of the leading figures of the Christian message. He investigates all these things. Uh, one, uh, one of my favorite Christian apologists is uh, Gary Habermas. I, uh, I like Gary not only because he's a really fine Christian thinker, but I like him because he's very, it's very clear that the faith has transformed his life. Some of the things that I learned about the death of his wife really I found impressive about him. Uh, but Habermas says that the Apostle Paul probably, if he were living today and went to see his psychologist, the psychologist would probably say that Paul was uh, obsessive compulsive. He keeps going over all these things multiple times. He keeps going back, meeting the Apostle. Okay, is this what we all said? Is my ideas agree with you? This is what I saw, agrees with what you saw? That is, if we're to bring David Hume, Paul is the ideal person. He's obsessive compulsive. He looks at all the details. He checks everything out. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 through 8, For what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. How many of you remember the E.F. Hutton commercial? The whole room talking, everybody's loud. Some person's talking about investing their money. They say, E.F. Hutton says, and everybody stops. I would suggest to you that when Paul, the apostle in the early church, said, this is of first importance, the whole church, you could hear a pin drop. What, what does Paul think? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's powerful. What, what, what is Christianity? What's the earliest message? What's the primitive message, Paul? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. There is this fourfold formula in the New Testament. It appears here in 1 Corinthians 15. It appears in Mark 15 and 16. It appears, I believe, in Acts 13. And it's always this primitive kerygma. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. It appears three different times and three different sources in the New Testament. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. The early Christian message of the resurrection. Paul's summary of the primitive Christian belief and preaching, again, kerygma, the chronological enumeration of separate witnesses to Jesus' resurrection, 
right? He appears to these various people. Uh, he doesn't list all the witnesses. He doesn't mention the women who are the, the first of the individuals. He's probably listing the most significant in terms of presenting a historical case. The order of significant appearances to Peter, the, the early preacher, to the twelve, probably meant uh, maybe even more than the original apostles uh, without Judas, to more than 500, to James, to all of the apostles, probably growing at that point, lastly to Paul. Paul's obsessive-compulsive. He's going over it and over it and over it. He wants to get it right. He wants to make sure everything is followed up upon. That's the kind of person you want in terms of looking at all of the details. Are all of the I's dotted, the T's crossed? Ancient Corinth, where Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. So the resurrection is both the central to historic Christian doctrine. Have you ever noticed that about the resurrection? It's not only one of the most central Christian doctrines that you have to believe in order to be saved, but it's also the central supporting evidence. It's both a doctrine at the heart of our faith and what confirms our faith historically. The resurrection functions in both of those ways. The proclamation of Jesus Christ's historical resurrection from the dead did what? It produced the historic Christian church. We're the community of the resurrection. Where did it come from if not the resurrection? Look at all of the implausible naturalistic theories. They don't provide an adequate explanation. The resurrection also challenges all of humanity to reconsider what they think of death and the afterlife. So is the resurrection a dangerous idea? It is. It tells us that much of what we are taught about death is incomplete, is inadequate, is even false. And it tells us that we need to orient our life differently based upon the idea that the Messiah, the Son of God, has come into the world. So is Christianity, does it contain dangerous ideas? It absolutely does. And the most dangerous of all is that Jesus, the Messiah, conquered death. He rose from the dead. Here's a, a couple books that can be very helpful for your own study on the resurrection of Christ. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm working on a manuscript night, right now entitled uh, Historic Christianity's Seven Dangerous Ideas, and writing books is very hard work. Uh, one of the books is The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Habermas and Michael Lacona. We have that book available here at the Christ Reformed Bookstore. Uh, I have a chapter in my book, Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions, that deals with the resurrection, that deals with some of the content discussed this evening. And then a very fine book, uh, Defending the Christian Faith, is entitled Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, uh, who has spent many years looking at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection of our Lord from the dead is one of the most dangerous ideas because it teaches us fundamentally different ideas than what we've been exposed to about the end of our life. Well, let me close my talk here and uh, 
We'll see if there are uh, some questions that uh, you might want to ask or have somewhat of a dialogue, but you have to come to the microphone uh, because people have to be able to pick up your question when they listen to it. And so would anybody like to come to the microphone, ask a question, make a comment? You're welcome to do so. Hi, Ken. I had two questions. One, uh, aren't hallucinations tremendously personalized and subjective? And so would that wipe out the idea of a mass hallucination to those 500 folks? Okay. Yeah. And your second point? Okay. Hallucination. Yeah, I, I agree with your point. Um, I mean, let's, let's think about the nature of a hallucination. Uh, they tend to be very private. They tend to be very subjective. They tend to be a projection of ideas that are already within the human psyche. Now, that raises in and of itself all kinds of problems. Uh, one of the biggest problems is the apostles didn't expect the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, these were people that didn't think about the Messiah's role the way Jesus thought about it. So if they were going to be projecting what was already in their psyche, it wouldn't be seeing Jesus risen from the dead because that was not part of their messianic expectation. So that's, that's, a, that's a huge part of that issue. Another part of your question is the 500 people. Can you have mass hallucinations? It's a very dicey thing to consider. Uh, remember, Jesus is appearing to people outside, inside, men, women, enemies, friends, a variety of circumstances. This is a very, very difficult uh, circumstance to then say that some subjective vision explains all of the data. Uh, and remember, Paul, Paul, Paul says he's familiar with visions, but he says the resurrection of Jesus is not a vision. And don't you find it ironic that the reason there was a guard posted at the tomb was because the Jewish authorities uh, had remembered that Jesus might rise from the dead on the third day. So it seems like the Jewish authorities had a better grip on it than the apostles did. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, let's, let's put that context. Uh, again, Christianity has changed the world. It's turned the world upside down. Uh, think of the areas, uh, art, uh, philosophy, history, you name it. So Western civilization, where did it come from? We need some kind of coherent explanation. If you want to throw off historic Christianity, then give us some explanatory hypothesis. You know, if you want to poke holes in the historic Christian viewpoint, go ahead. But give us some reasonable explanation as to the alternative. So the guards are at the tomb. They place this large stone uh, it seems that the Romans are aware that something may be up. Something might happen, which could cause all kinds of potential problems. Yet they're not able to control it. Uh, the tomb's empty. Uh, according to the testimony, the, the guards be become paralyzed. There's an earthquake. Uh, women encounter an, an angel, at least one angel, maybe two. Um, and there's no natural explanation 
that's adequate for all of these kinds of things. Now, some people, uh, some skeptics, people who were once Christians, uh, it's always interesting to trace people's changes of mind. Uh, and there are people who claim to be Christian and have now become skeptics. And in fact, some of them have written books. Some of them have been ministers. Some have even been apologists. I know a fellow in particular who uh, is a, really a very, very bright fellow who took graduate degree in theology, ended up becoming a skeptic, challenging the resurrection. Now, m- many of these, a number of these people say that they can never kind of put together what what happened with the resurrection. You know, talks about all of these kinds of things. You know, it, it seems to me that what we've done tonight is kind of looked at sketching out uh, the events of the resurrection, uh, the people who were involved, the claims that were made. And certainly when you're dealing with a supernatural event, it's difficult to completely get your mind around it, if not impossible. Yet I think what is powerful, and this is something that Bill Craig brings up, the Christian message is one explanation, and it's one theory, it's one explanatory hypothesis, and one of the things that makes it superior is it seems to be able to fit and explain the data. Whereas the naturalistic explanations, you have to have multiple explanations. And they seem less reasonable than the resurrection. They seem highly implausible in that context. And so... Uh, as, as powerful as uh, the resurrection may be and as difficult it, as it may be to come to believe in, it seems to fit the data. Anybody else? Question or comment? When you consider the horrors of the Holocaust and that the Jewish people as a whole did not have faith in Christ and the resurrection, how do you think that impacted them overall? Do you think a lot of people became atheists? turned away completely from God because of what they endured during that time? Or do you think that more people actually might have turned to Christ, might have actually come to faith and believe? Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's very good. Uh, it's a penetrating question. I think it's correct to say that the Jews believed in a, a general resurrection from the dead. That is, while they didn't believe that the Messiah would come and experience a resurrection. They believed at the end of the at the end of time there would be a general resurrection of all people. So they had that belief, but they didn't have uh, a belief in the messianic uh, component. I think I think tying uh, that together with the tremendous uh, abuse, the tremendous suffering. Uh, that Jews have faced through the centuries, and in particular, uh, as you noted, the Holocaust. Um, Six million Jewish people were killed in the Holocaust. And it was a Holocaust unlike other Holocausts. I mean, this was really the first time that there was a systematic attempt to exterminate a particular race of people because of their ethnicity, because of their religion. I mean, you have you have a Holocaust that probably involved more people in the Soviet Union and probably even more in, in Mao's China 
but it doesn't take that kind of same systematic extermination based upon religious and and ethnicity. Um, it's it's a big question. I I think it's factually true that for many people the Holocaust gave Jews reason to doubt the trustworthiness and the care of Yahweh. Um, many Jewish theologians have said that this was a time of of of, of great skepticism because of what happened to them. Um, I personally do think that it's not just the Jewish community. I think people need hope. They need purpose. I think there is something about death. We want to put it out of our mind. We want to walk around as if it didn't exist. But inevitably, we know that we're going to face it. We know that there's no stopping it. Um, I think that uh, Viktor Frankl, who is this famous German Jew who was in the Holocaust, he lived through the Holocaust, uh, was an extraordinary psychiatrist. He came out of that experience saying what people need in order to give them hope and purpose during the great trial and, and stressful times of life is hope. In fact, he said that in order to kind of stay sane, he began psychoanalyzing the guards and the other inmates in Auschwitz. And he noticed that when they gave up hope, they'd literally fall over dead. Because the prisoners in the camp were being systematically starved, as soon as they gave up hope that their wife was still alive, their children were alive, the allies were going to rescue them, God would rescue them, he said as soon as they gave up hope, he comes out, he breaks with Freud, he breaks with Jung, he says what people need in life is a philosophy of life that gives them hope and meaning and purpose. Is there anything more hopeful than the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ? And, of course, my hope, Romans 11, is that someday there will be many Jews, that uh, God will take the blinders away and they will see uh, the world's Messiah in, in all of his glory. So great question. Uh, no, Judaism does not have something similar to Christ's resurrection. They do believe in the general resurrection, but we all need hope and purpose. Hope and purpose and significance are much more a stabilizing factor than going for therapy and even medication, though I'm not against any of those things to help people cope. So great question. Great lecture, great points. Good stuff. Christianity's dangerous ideas. The resurrection of the dead. Our hope. Our hope is that not just that our sins are forgiven. That's the promise. But our hope is really in, the, in our coming Lord and Savior. When we confess that we believe that he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, we're also confessing that he will raise us up again on the last day and we will be like him and we will see him like he really is, that we will live for eternity with the restored, unbroken image of God, sinless, no more war, no more disease, no more death. Mm. 
O to take us through this veil of tears and unite us with Christ, our King. We are not to mourn as people who do not have hope because our Lord is risen and he has promised that he will raise us again when he returns. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Fighting for the Faith depends upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important global radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us in what we do here at Fighting for the Faith by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. You'll be making a one-time uh, contribution by doing that and specify the amount, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the not tomorrow next week until next week may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen